Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about out-of-control sexual behavior. But before we go into the details of this episode, I wanted to remind you guys that if you haven't signed up for the email list, please do so. We are releasing various bonus episodes. And if you are in the list, you will receive them. Also, you can check the show notes for checking out some of those previous bonus episodes that we had. Uh, We had one on sex and OCD. Uh, We had one around depression and sexuality and one on eating disorders and sexuality. So if you're interested, make sure you're signing up for it. So today our topic, as I mentioned, is around treatments of out of control sexual behavior. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to have out of control sexual behavior? How do we define it? How do I know that my sexual behavior is not out of control? If I know someone that's struggling, what is the, how can I support them? And what does the treatment look like? I am so excited to have uh, Michael Vicarito on our show. He's a wonderful sex therapist and he's an author and consultant. And as a sex therapist, he provides individuals, couples, and group psychotherapy for a range of sexual behavioral health concerns. He've developed a sexual health assessment and treatment protocol with Doc Brown Harvey, which has published in Treating Addicts Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction. Uh, he got the STAR 2018 Health Professional Book Award winner and also as a sexual health consultant for behavioral health systems, Baltimore and University of Maryland Prevention Research Center, Mr. Vigorito designed and implemented capacity building initiatives to integrate sexual health into mental health and substance use disorder treatment. His book, The Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior, is one of the gold standard of field of sex therapy when it comes to treatments of these challenges. So I believe this episode will help help you if you're someone that you're struggling with out-of-control sexual behavior, or if you're a clinician that you're kind of seeking out resources how to work with this population. Anyhow, without further ado, here's my conversation with Mr. Michael Vigorito. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during the introduction, I am so excited to have Michael Vigorito, licensed marriage family therapist, certified sex therapist, and author of one of the wonderful books that I really use in my practice. Michael, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Great to be here. Your book that you call author, I think it's a fantastic tool for many of the clinicians, including myself. And I know that the focus of the book that you have is on out-of-control sexual behaviors. And mm-hmm. it's such a challenging area for clinicians. I can talk about my, yeah. my experiences. At, ta- at times, couples coming in, one partner thinks, oh, my, my husband has like out-of-control sexual behavior. When we're talking about it, 
he got caught watching porn a couple of times. And so I feel at times there is this kind of a judgment that plays into it, depending on clinician's view on what is what is within control that can change. So since this is your area of expertise, I want to know how do you define out of control sexual behaviors? Well, I think that was a great case example. I, I see that frequently in my office as well on the other coast. Now, I, and I like that we start with defining terms just so everyone has kind of a shared language of what we mean by this phrase. So how I talk about out-of-control sexual behavior is that it's a sexual health problem in which an individual's consensual sexual urges, thoughts, or behaviors feel out of control, right? So it places the definition into that person's subjective experience, right? Where other definitions are kind of based more on a disease model where here, I'm trying to, to expand it a bit and talk about this is more of a, a sexual problem that subjectively feels out of control for them. So then the clinician can get curious about, okay, what does that mean for them so I can better understand what's happening uh, in their sex life? Help us understand this kind of subjective term that you're mentioning. How do you assess that? Yeah, well, it's through psychotherapy, right? My assessment typically can run between four to eight, sometimes 12 sessions, right? Where we're trying to mm-hmm. unpack and understand all the, the factors that can contribute to their sexual problems and how they're feeling out of control. Where traditionally therapists will, uh, you know, assess, diagnose, and treat, right? And that's kind of the, the typical model for if someone is coming in for a depression or generalized anxiety disorder or an eating disorder, where since there is no officially recognized sexual behavior disorder that fits into this realm, we have to, as clinicians have to back up and get curious about all the ways in which sexual behavior may become problematic. And if they're coming in the door saying, hey, I feel like I'm addicted or I feel like I'm sexually compulsive, since there's no standard definition of what sex addiction means or sexual compulsivity means, we have to back up and help understand how the client is using that term right? Because they're using it typically as a metaphor to explain that they're feeling out of control or just to communicate that this feels really problematic. So I need to get curious about what it means for them. What are the times where they are feeling less in control? One of the sex therapists that I I read often is Marty Klein. He makes this great Mm -hmm. point where he says, just because a client says they feel out of control, doesn't mean they actually are out of control right? So we have to get uh, curious about all the times in which they're feeling out of control, but when do they actually do regulate their behavior? When do they stop? Uh, When do they choose to do something else, right? Because they may say like, this happens all the time to me at night. It's like, well, that's interesting. Why isn't it happening during the day, right? They're maybe because they prioritize work. And so they're like, all right, I'm not going to engage in this behavior uh, while I'm at work, but I do it in the evening. So that means they're making decisions. They are in control during those times. So all of those interesting contradictions or times where we want to get curious when they say they're feeling out of control versus when they are actually directing their behavior in a way that feels right to them. And I love this kind of form of assessment of like client center, kind of asking them about their experiences, mm-hmm. kind of getting really curious about what's going on in their life versus kind of going through a check mark of like, you, you, do you do this or not? Don't. Yeah. So that's like going through it. And that's it, the way you're putting it sounds like very significantly more empowering for clients. Yeah, I would, I would, I would like to think so, right? Because it's, it's, it's a motivationally based intervention where I want to understand what their motivation for change is. One of my first 
criteria that I recommend clinicians to understand is what is their motivation for change? What is bringing them to my office, right? So if they are thinking of themselves as being addicted or compulsive, it kind of puts them in this powerless position that there's something internal in me that is, is making me do this thing where I want to reframe it as like, all right, there's something about your sexual behavior you want to change. I want to know why you want to change that, right? What are the factors that are contributing to that? What is the internal conflict you have about this behavior? So we can then empower them to achieve whatever vision of sexual health that they have for themselves, right? It's not based on me saying, oh, I think you're addicted, or it's not based on the spouse saying, I think you're compulsive. I want to know what your motivation is for change so then we can enhance that can clarify their, their, their vision of sexual health and understand why it is that they're having difficulty achieving it on their own and that they needed help to do that. And I know in your book also you talk about motivational interviewing and what you're describing is part of motivational interviewing. And I think that's fantastic because when, when like as a clinician, I feel like we jump into doing interventions without doing a thorough assessment, without kind of like checking in about people's buy-in, how motivated to, or like how motivated people are to kind of change the behaviors, then people are not going to get to the places that they want to, uh, they would be ready to take action. So I love that you're talking about and kind of like really examining what is the driving force there for them. So I'm kind of curious, how common is this, this kind of condition, this disorder? How many of like, clients, I mean, this is, seems like one of your main specialties, but how, yeah. co- how common you get clients that they are coming in specifically for out of control sexual behaviors? Well, the, it is the, primary focus of my practice, right? So, uh, which is unique. Uh, Not every sex therapist has this particular specialty, but it's hard to assess overall prevalence rates because there is no current accepted diagnostic term. So, it's hard for us to to gather statistics around it because there's a couple of ways I can answer this question. I've seen statistics ranging from 3% of the population up to 20% of the population to 30%. And in my mind is like when we're getting into those high numbers of percentages, this is more reflecting the diversity of sexual expression Mm -hmm. than than a pathology that's in the, the community. And so it also reflects why it's been so difficult for researchers to identify a discrete disorder because when they're looking for someone who just meets the criteria for a sex addiction or just meets the criteria for sexual compulsivity, they're having a hard time because they are also finding folks who meet criteria for other psychiatric conditions. So in one sense, it could also just be a sexual symptom to another psychiatric condition, such as ADHD, uh, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder. So when they try to separate them out and just find a discrete population of folks who just meet criteria for a sex addiction or uh, sexual compulsivity, they're having a difficult time doing that. So it's one of the reasons why we haven't been able to identify and use one criteria to describe the diversity of sexual problems that people experience that they're calling out of control sexual behavior. And I agree with you that at times, you know, when the numbers are higher, you wonder if people are pathologizing the kind of a diverse sexual expression that people are having. Mm -hmm. And based on what I'm hearing and what I read in your book, it doesn't seem like it's specifically about what kind of sexual behavior people are practicing. It's more about their relationship and the, the kind of reaction they're having while they are kind of like exploring like these sexual things. Is that how you perceive it? I think there are multiple reasons why people feel out of control. And I think one of them is what I mentioned earlier, that 
this could be just a, a sexual symptom to uh, undertreated or untreated psychiatric condition. Mm-hmm. And it could be also about what you were just talking about that. And forgive me if I'm, I'm, I'm misunderstanding how you understood this, but how I was hearing your, your explanation was that this person may have a values conflict about what's going mm-hmm. on, uh, that they may be experiencing some type of sexual stigma regarding whatever particular sexual interest that they have uh, that might be outside of convention. Uh, it might be a values conflict within their marriage that uh, the two people really hadn't discussed what will be my solo sex life after we get married. There might be an expectation that we, the only time you'll have an orgasm is with me, or the only time you will think about sexual thoughts, I'm the one you're thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there is a narrow definition of fidelity and someone hasn't met that criteria. So then that creates a conflict in the marriage, right? So these values conflicts can be internal within the person, like this is not who I thought I would be sexually, or it could be a values conflict between other people. This is not what my partner wants as far as kind of a sexual expression within this relationship. I think that that was exactly what, what I was thinking about. And because of my, my background, I get, so our listeners, they know that I'm Iranian and I grew up in Iran. Therefore, I get lots of people from more conservative, religious-based communities. And I see this dilemma of this kind of value conflict in the couples and also with, within individuals that they yeah. feel kind of lots of shame around their uh, sexuality. Therefore, any sorts of behavior that's even is like outside their narrow definition of like a sex with the like husband or wife, they kind of see it and get scared as a kind of it's, oh my God, it's out of control. So I think the value piece, as you mentioned, the value conflict is a big part of what I see. Yeah. And there's this concept I call fidelity of thought, mm-hmm. right? That we have defined in our marriage a, a boundary of fidelity. That means you cannot think of someone else sexually and only, you can only think about sex or someone sexually if it's me. So they've moved the boundary fidelity from sex with other people, the the behavior to fidelity of thought that you can't think of anyone else sexually but me. And that sets this really high expectation uh, that most people, I would argue, cannot obtain, right? That they will have sexual thoughts and desires outside of this marriage. And can that be something that is understood as being a part of their sexuality, but not necessarily a threat to the emotional core of this relationship, particularly if they make this choice, like I have these thoughts, but my behavior is different and I choose to only have sex with you, right? And can they negotiate what that monogamy looks like for them? And I'm so glad you mentioned that. We had this episode on fidelity agreement, and I feel that people uh, sometimes they overestimate how much control they have over their thoughts or the partner mm-hmm. have over their thoughts. And it could be even healthy to have a range of different sexual thoughts and not trying to control that. So having these open conversations with the partner can be very helpful. But I guess I wanted to pivot to... Uh, something slightly different in the sense that as as you probably know more than me that there is this rift in the kind of community of therapists between kind of people who see kind of these behaviors out of control and some people see it as an addiction mm-hmm. so tell us how do you see these kind of this conceptualization how, how different they are and how do you see the some of the main differences yeah well in one sense they're fundamentally different in that my definition is really just a description of a behavior problem, 
right? And that hopefully keeps the door open for people to understand the diverse factors that contribute to a sexual behavior problem. The other models are all pathology-based definitions. We have primarily the sex addiction camp, then you have sexual compulsivity, and there's also impulse control disorders, right? So Mm -hmm. all three of them are trying to establish a disease model that fits within the DSM structure, right? So in one sense, we are fundamentally different in that I'm just looking at this as a problem that uh, is within the normal range of human behavior, where these other conceptualizations see this as a pathology. Now, they will differ within themselves as as what the mechanism is that underlines these uh, different pathologies. So you have sex addiction that is kind of borrowed from drug and alcohol addiction mechanisms, right? So supporting the notion that that sex can be addictive, where you have uh, sexual pulsivity. This is more of thinking of compulsion from the anxiety disorder family, where that there's some behavior that they engage in uh, to regulate their obsession, obsessive thoughts or underlying anxiety. And then you have impulse control disorders where you have this kind of unplanned, unpremeditated, impulsive action that happens repeatedly over time, right? But they're all grounded in this idea that there is an underlying disorder or pathology that this behavior is a symptom of. So when I talk about out-of-control sexual behavior, I'm kind of stepping outside of that rubric that there is a discrete sexual behavior disorder that's here to be identified, diagnosed, and treated but rather allowing the therapist to understand that there are a variety of factors that can contribute to why someone feels out of control or is using this disordered language. And it's important for us to not obscure our curiosity because one of the reasons why, taking a step back, one of the reasons why I encourage folks to just adopt this phrase of out-of-control sexual behavior is that we are not inserting a disease model where one has not been established, right? There's this concept called an iatrogenic injury where in the medical world is when, let's say, for instance, a surgeon doesn't wash their hands and they insert bacteria that creates an infection. So that disease was created by the healer, right? Mm-hmm. In psychotherapy, I feel like the, the comparison is similar where the therapist is inserting this disease model, this disease narrative into the clinical conceptualization, and that can also create injury, right? So we want to not be premature in our assessment of a disorder so we can get curious about all these factors that are potentially here uh, as a way not to encourage the client to adopt a disease narrative because that has particular consequences too, right? To think of themselves as having a psychiatric disorder that I have this addiction to sex and that must mean that I'm going to have a lifetime of recovery and that I'm never going to be rid of this, this disease, right? Those, that's not a benign experience. So I encourage clinicians to find language that does not assume a disorder, right? Uh, that can allow the, the client to get curious about all of uh, the factors that are happening here for them so they can develop a treatment plan that's precise but also doesn't assume a disease when one hasn't been identified. 
Thank you for that overview. I think that was that's very important, especially this notion of creating injury by a clinician. And one thing that I see, again, I, I see people coming in for sex therapy after they've been kind of like through this kind of period of addressing their out-of-control sexual behaviors. And what I notice, and it might be just the clients I, I'm seeing, is that clients who go through kind of addiction model, they're mm-hmm. part of like different groups. They feel, okay, okay, this was the disease. It wasn't me. They're able to kind of like, they go through the program. And then when they are, quote unquote, are able to establish sobriety, it's really hard for them to incorporate sexuality back to their relationship, to their life, because mm-hmm. now they have this conflict versus they think the clients who see it as, as a path to out of control, like a like the going with that narrative of out of control sexual behaviors, it it appears to be an easier transition back because they they understand the process. But initially, it seems like it gives people comfort thinking, okay, it was addiction and it wasn't me. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That one of the now I, I don't want to disparage anyone who who has found help in a twelve step model or a fellowship grouping. Right. I so sometimes I think when people hear me trying to explain why I don't use that conceptualization. They also hear me just dismissing that this is a problem altogether or that they can't get help from 12-step S meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So I I try to encourage like, no, I'm just trying to help us get curious about all the ways in which this behavior feels out of control. Or what I also like to say is that this behavior has a function and I want to know what that function is. And if I just assume it's an addiction, then I'm not going to be able to understand what that underlying function is, right? Number one. Number two, I think we have to give clients hope that they can achieve their goals or feel better or that can address whatever problem is that they are experiencing. And when, when they are uh, clients run into the addiction model online or through maybe friends or someone, their doctor recommends that they go to sex addiction treatment. I, I see that my clients have, they feel hopeful that I was like, Oh, there is an answer here. There is a solution. I can get help. And I think that is a powerful experience that all clients need. So I frequently have clients who have come in where initially they they were in so much pain and so much fear that their relationship might end that they could just grab onto this narrative, say, look, I'm, I have an addiction, I'm going to go seek treatment. And that kind of settles the system. It settles that relationship a little bit and gives that person some space to address whatever problems they're, they're having. And that can be a helpful moment, right? But I see what you see often too, is like that, that period can be temporary, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times it, is, it creates this complete extinction of their sexual expression. And that is, in my opinion, not a good long-term solution. Over time, we need to find a way to integrate sexuality and sexual pleasure into their identity, into their relationship in a way that feels responsible and fulfilling uh, and less problematic. So there, you can also potentially see this just kind of as a pacing issue or kind of a, a timing issue. So like at a point of crisis, a person may grab for addiction treatment as a way to resolve the crisis and communicate to their partner that I acknowledge that this is a problem and I'm getting help. Then that crisis subsides a bit and now what? Right? So I find that clients frequently come back or come to me at that point because they want to find like, okay, how do I now express myself sexually in a way that's not problematic, that way that is, and is also pleasurable. 
Uh, and sometimes the, I think the addiction model struggles with how to integrate sexual pleasure in a way that feels responsible and consistent with their values. Absolutely. And I love the openness you have to kind of help people to go with with the path that's helpful for them. And mm-hmm. when they're ready to seek out uh, maybe doing the deeper work, then that's that could be a good time to do kind of like a more process-oriented work. But you're right that it can give the addiction model maybe momentarily at the beginning, give an answer and kind of subside the crisis, as you mentioned, that like all these things get get unfolded and with the partner, with the work, that this was an addiction and we're going to treatment the same way. If I was a heroin addict, I would go to treatment, I would get fixed. So it seems like it makes, it gives people this familiar framework to kind of like uh, understand the situation. And it gives them hope, right? And I don't want to take that away from folks. I think that's a very important piece for their healing. And I also just want to make certain that people, because it happens both ways too. It's like some people find a lot of hope from that. And then other people who've been in that find it to be stigmatizing and restricting. And then they feel like they have no other place to go, right? Because there's, there are no other residential treatment programs for this, or there's no non 12 step uh, sex related groups out there. So they feel like they're left without anyone coming in to address their needs. And that's one of the reasons why Doug and I decided to write this book is that there needs to be an alternative for folks who don't resonate with a 12-step model or don't see themselves as having a disorder here, but they still want to get help. They still want to address a sexual problem. Uh, and if we don't, as in Doug and I, don't help the field create a path, where are they going to go? Right? And I think sex therapists are in a great position to be able to help people with that. And it seems like a big part of the work is assessment, understanding, underlying factors that drives this uh, kind of out-of-control sexual behaviors. What does the treatment kind of entail after assessment? How long the treatment usually take for people? Well, it's so individualistic, so it's hard to make some of those generalizations because someone could be coming in saying that I'm a sex addict and then when you get into the, the behavior and what's happening is they have an extreme values conflict and it's because they maybe look at sexual imagery once a month, right? And they have such religious values uh, around that behavior that they, they feel so out of control around it and they fear the, the religious consequences to that and the impact on their relationship with God, their impact uh, in their relationship with their faith-based community, Right. So that person, I wouldn't necessarily recommend to uh, like group therapy and kind of that longer course of therapy that I have for some folks. It's more just about resolving that internal conflict and that might not take a full course of, of treatment for folks who also benefit from group. So I kind of jumped, I jumped to one example. So let me just talk generally. So like I uh, see people both individually and in group. So if someone who I feel like meets that level of care, a lot of times they're in treatment about a year and that's like a group and concurrent individual therapy, give or take six months. So, and I also have a couple people in my group who've been in group for a couple years. So that's the kind of the level of care that I'm, I'm treating in an outpatient private practice setting. But as I mentioned, kind of that, that case earlier, I wouldn't recommend that person for group because he doesn't need that level of care, right? It's just a values conflict that he's dealing with. And that could be addressed in maybe uh, four months of individual therapy using kind of uh, you know, CBT, some education around sexuality, and trying to better understand their their erotic orientation as well, and 
along with their kind of religious faith-based identity. It's wonderful that you offer groups. I saw that you're certifying groups and I think group can kind of this kind of collective experience of the kind of sharing this experiences and talking about in the group can be very powerful. I got very excited. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's it's okay. I I enjoy it. Like I actually have two different groups now. So I've got one that's a kind of a general group for men, uh, heterosexual, gay or bisexual men who are concerned about out of control sexual behavior. And it's a, it's a weekly group and it's a really powerful experience for these guys because uh, it's a space where they can speak openly and freely about their sexual shame, their sexual problems, uh, learn how to be in intimate emotional relationships with other people. I mean, these are primarily just men, right? So they can hopefully take those skills and apply it to their relationships outside of that group. Uh, and I find that one of the kind of driving factors in sexual behavior problems is around sexual shame and group is a great shame reduction intervention right so if you think about shame as this experience of being seen in this extremely diminished way and all of our shame defenses are about not being seen like you can see that even like as, you know really young children like when they feel embarrassed about something where they do that like they turn their face or they they hide behind the legs of their their parents right that's those are all shame defenses all about not being seen so in individual work, like we start some of that shame-based interventions, but it's not as potent when, unless you have other people around, right? That kind of creates this controlled activation so they can access that shame a bit more and hopefully be able to express whatever that shame is attached to, that they then, it gets received in a way that's honorable and caring from the other group members and they can slowly decouple their shame from their sexuality. And so they can then, move outside of group and start to communicate in ways that are much more direct and clear because sometimes these the sexual behavior problems the symptoms that they come with are these indirect solutions to to have their sexual needs met they you know they're making these unilateral decisions in their relationships or they're they're being secretive about their sexual interests or desires and that's all a shame defense so if we can reduce that shame and decouple that from their sexual interests, then hopefully they don't need that same behavior problem or that the, the same function of that behavior. They don't need to hide it. They don't need to make those unilateral changes anymore. They can be more direct. So yeah, I can talk about group and shame. It's a, it's a powerful uh, and fun for me as a therapist. <laughs> I love it. I feel for them and, and yes. I offer that work. But to, to see these men do this work is really rewarding, I guess, is what I'm trying to say for me. Well, and I think people are not utilizing group enough. I used to work at different kind of treatment facility and like uh, hospitals. And I saw that, as you mentioned, that working in a group, getting support from people with same experiences can be extremely powerful, especially when there are an element of shame, there's an element of isolation. So I love that you offer that group. And uh, my hope for people is to kind of think about it as not necessarily a, uh, it's a kind of I'm, I'm getting individual therapy in a context of being with other people so it's less than and as, as you know as group therapy is on its own is a powerful model oh yeah absolutely it's a modality in and of itself it's not just like parallel play for individual therapy mm-hmm. uh, there's a different process that is involved in group therapy than both couples or individual well something else that i wanted to kind of ask your opinion about depending on kind of acuity of someone's behavior sometimes people have like real consequences for example might have some sdi issues and disease infections and disease or any other sorts of different kind of like costs 
costs of their behavior depending on what they're indulging in. When you're seeing people from out of control sexual lens, do you see more of like, uh, is this something that's prevalent in this community or not necessarily uh, more than what you see with other members of community? Yeah, well, it's prevalent enough that I recommend all of my clinicians that I train that they need to ask about STIs. But typically you'll have you'll have people who fall into different camps, right? You have people who are concerned about out-of-control sexual behavior that just involves solo sex, right? Mm -hmm. So they're concerned about online masturbation. They're concerned about their sexual fantasies or online chatting, and it never leaves the digital realm. So STIs are not a concern for those, those folks. It's more the concern for folks who are engaged in partnered sex, right? And one of the conceptualizations that I look at, because I've mentioned a few already, I mentioned that this could be a symptom of an untreated psychiatric disorder. This could be a symptom of kind of moral incongruence or kind of values conflict around their sexual interests or desires. And there's another group or people who have a high sex drive, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you just kind of think of sex drive that would fall in a a normal bell curve, you're going to have most people are in the middle, you know, that 68%. And then you have folks who are on the upper end. So these are people who are uh, experiencing this kind of pain from their sexual interests more readily than other folks, or they're kind of more sensitive to sexual stimuli in the environment. So their, their gas pedal is really sensitive and they Mm -hmm. will get get pressed and they, they move forward. So these folks, are probably engaging in you know higher rate of, of sex partner change than other folks. They may be engaging in that higher risk sexual behavior that put them at risk for an STI or unintended pregnancy. So these are the folks that I want to make certain. Do they know what their STI and HIV statuses are? You know, what is their contraception plan? What is their plan to prevent STIs? And if they are unclear on what their status is, one of the first treatment recommendations is get tested, mm-hmm. right? And then we can do some education around which STIs get transmitted, how, and how to best protect uh, oneself. And then if they are uh, positive for an STI, to get treatment immediately and, and talk about issues of disclosure if that's present for them. Well, I, I love that in all these areas, you have tons of very useful information that can be on its own one conversation, like a full episode. Mm-hmm. I know we're toward the end of our time. So I want to make sure that I bet many of our listeners are excited to know about your practice, where they can find more information about your book and all the wonderful writings that you have done. So what would be the best way that people can get hold of you? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, you can find me uh, online at michaelvigorito.com. My practice is in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and I'm available. Uh, <laughs> I used to, it's interesting, you're uh, in California, correct? So I used to uh, practice in California. So I'm oh, still nice. mission in California and in D.C. and in Virginia. Oh, great, great. So you, I would imagine you offer video counseling like many of yeah. our, great, great, great. That would be great. But only in those three jurisdictions. I'm, <laughs> I, 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 it seems yeah. like there's tons of people that can benefit. Yeah. If, I mean, all, only I have a, a license for California and that's tons of people. So I can now imagine if you have like three licenses, I wouldn't yeah, tell lots it's of a lot. it's a, it's a bit, it's, it's too much, but I, I enjoy it. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. I, guys, I leave a link in the show notes to, to Michael's website and the book. And this was absolutely a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for being so generous with your information. Thanks again for the invitation. It was wonderful to be here. Have a good day.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Michael Helfall. It was really informative when he talked about kind of focusing on the underlying factors that contributes to this out of control sexual behaviors and I kind of address those issues. He talked about impulse control or kind of value discrepancies and also the mental health challenges that might kind of cause people to act out sexually. I talked about it a lot in my bonus episodes around the role of uh, mental health challenges and also how they can impact our sexuality. And I see that times that my clients who struggle with depression or bipolar or substance use, this kind of out of control sexual behavior can be a byproduct of that. And I've seen it many times that addressing the primary challenge can help people be able to address their sexual kind of out of control sexual behaviors as well. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy this show. And if you like this show, please write us an honest review, subscribe and share this podcast with other people. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.